scripture reading this morning comes from the letter to the Colossians, both chapters 1 and 4, which you can find on page 983 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Colossians 1, verses 24 to 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see the good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And then chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. And while you find your seat, let's pray and ask God to meet us uh, in his word. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who speaks. And so we pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to us this morning. Show us Christ. Show us your glory. By the power of your spirit, would you open your word to our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that that you would give us the ears we need to hear you and the eyes that we need to see you and that our hearts would be soft, ready to be changed by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, When the crowds gathered outside of Jerusalem on that special day over 2,000 years ago or right around 2,000 years ago, spreading their cloaks, on the ground and, and cutting branches from trees in order to spread those on the on the path. That crowd that, that had gathered that day was not plotting a coup to liberate Jerusalem from the Roman oppressors. 
They weren't rallying around a common cause, something that they were going to stand against or, or do together. They were not there because of anything that they were going to do. That's not what drew them to the city gates that day. They were there to witness and to respond to something God was going to do. Something he told them he would do long ago. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This was the prophecy of Zechariah. They, they, they came because God told them that he was going to do something, and they came to add their voice of praise in announcing that he was finally doing it. Matthew 21, verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There was a joyful anticipation surrounding that day. Now, whether they understood just what it meant for God's king to finally come, you find that unfold as the week goes on. But there was a joyful anticipation, not because they were about to do something great, but because God was about to do something great. And the same was true of Good Friday and Easter. The the power of that week was not what we do for God, but what he has done for us. And so it is that the essence of Christianity is not advice for us to go do something. It is news that God has done something. The gospel is not advice for how to live. It is news that God has established his kingdom and dealt with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son and the power of the Spirit. So if you think about it this way, that's the difference between falling overboard in the middle of the ocean and being told to swim to shore versus being told to hold on to the person who is ascending out of the helicopter above to rescue you. One is advice on how to save yourself, swim to shore, The other is news that there is a Savior, and you just have to hold on to Him. People didn't gather on Palm Sunday because they figured out how to improve their lives, and they were about to get busy doing it. They were not planning to swim to shore and save themselves. We don't continue to gather every week because we're such good swimmers, and we've got life figured out, and we know how to do it. Christianity changes lives, not because we're good at following advice, but because we've believed the news that there is a Savior and that He is great. That is the message that's come to us and that has changed us. That's the message God sends His church into the world to proclaim. And so, therefore, Christianity is, always has been, and always will be a word-based Faith. It is a faith that rests and comes from a message, a declaration, a message that is revealed to us in the word of God, in the scriptures, spanning the whole story of God from Genesis to Revelation, a message about a person, Jesus, our Savior and King, and a message that we're only actually able to understand through the spirit opening our eyes to hear that message. And so as we look at Colossians again this morning and we think about this question of of 
the vision God is calling us to, to bear witness to the gospel right here where we are in the Metro West. As we look at Colossians, we see this priority on God's word in the church's witness in two ways. We see it in the ministry that Paul models, what we read from chapter 1 and 2, Paul's description of his own ministry, and then we see it in the ministry he call, that Paul calls us to, what we read in chapter 4. Because the gospel's news, it is news of what God has done, not advice for what we should do. Because that is true, our witness is necessarily word-based. It's based on God's word and his message to us. So that's what we're going to see this morning. And we start with Paul's example, the priority of this word-based ministry. And it's not hard to see. If you look again at chapter 1, go ahead and flip back there if you're not still there. Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 5. So in his letter, Paul has just finished uh, describing or declaring to the Colossians the hope of the gospel. Chapter 1, 15 through 2, 23. We looked, looked at that a few weeks ago. This gospel that they have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He just got done telling them about this gospel of which he became a minister. Now he takes a minute to explain and talk a little bit about this ministry he's been given from God. What it's like, where it comes from, and what he's aiming for. And he starts in verse 24 as he describes his ministry to them. This is what God's called me to do. He, he starts by acknowledging the unique suffering that he endures as an apostle for Christ on behalf of the churches. How he is, quote, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And that is a strange way of describing your suffering for Jesus. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It sounds as though Jesus didn't quite do enough on the cross. That's not what Paul's talking about. We know that because he just got done in the previous passage telling us that Jesus has done enough and that there's nothing that needs to be added to it. He is supreme and his work on the cross is sufficient. All he means here is that Jesus isn't the only one God calls to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Jesus suffered in order to purchase our salvation. We suffer to illustrate his love, to show what it's like. And this is part of Paul's unique call. In Acts 9, God says that Paul is a chosen instrument of his to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So suffering is a unique part of Paul's apostolic ministry, suffering on behalf of the church. But that's not what he's so excited about. He, he acknowledges his suffering, you know, the fact that he's writing this letter from prison, not because he didn't pay his taxes or parked his car illegally, but because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus. He's in prison. But the heart of his ministry is revealed in verses 25 to 26. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That is the heart of Paul's ministry, to make 
the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul's ministry is word-based. It is focused on the word which comes to us in the scriptures. And his job is to make that word fully known, not just a little known, fully known. And what is the central message of that word that he is to make fully known? Verse 27, it is the gospel of Jesus. To them, to God's holy people, God chose to make known. This is what he's supposed to make known. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's primary aim, the main thing God sends him into the world to do is to make Christ known through the proclamation of his word. That is the witness he's called to bear, to show how all of human history up to this point has been leading to this point and now flows out of this point, this moment of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It all was leading up to it, and now all flows from it. In Jesus, God dwells bodily. That's amazing. Truly God, truly human, in order to make God known to us. In him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is unparalleled, unsurpassed, incomparably worthy. There's nothing better than Christ. There's Nothing more than Christ that we need. And having Christ changes everything. It really does. He makes us new and he rescues us from shame and slavery to sin and brings us to his glory. We share in the riches of his glory. We have the hope of sharing in that glory through Christ. And we know that's true through the word of God, the word of God that makes it known to us. And so Paul summarizes his ministry. You want to know what makes Paul the apostle tick, what drives him, what gets him up out of his prison cell and to put you know, pen to paper uh, or to proclaim in dangerous places. This is what drives him in verse 28. Him we proclaim. That's Christ. Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's priority in ministry is to proclaim the word of God. The word that is revealed in Scripture and points us to Jesus. The word that is able to change our lives such that we become mature in Christ, steadfast, more and more like Jesus. It changes us. And so as God calls us and sends us into the world as witnesses to his kingdom, remember that the power for our witness comes not from what we do for God or for others, but what he has done for us. That's where the power to change lives comes in proclaiming what God has done for us. As it's often uh, said, the word of God does the work of God. 
as the Spirit applies and, and, and brings that to bear on people's hearts. It's His Word that has the power to change us. There's uh, one pastor I uh, sometimes listen to or, or read his work, H.B. Charles, down in Florida, has said, Our preaching is not the reason the Word works. The Word is the reason our preaching works. The power is in God's word, whether that preaching is from the pulpit or in a classroom or around the dinner table or sitting down for coffee with a friend. What makes our message work, we don't make the word work in the way we present it. What makes our message work is that the word of God is powerful because the word of God reveals God and his finished work through Christ to us. And it is we have a a word based witness. That doesn't mean the church is all talk and no action. We don't want to draw a wrong conclusion. We, we talked about that last week. How if the message that we are believing isn't actually changing us to be more loving and more sacrificial and to demonstrate uh, how God has changed us, then why would anybody listen to that? So it's not that the church is all talk, no action. Uh, farthest thing from it. But the power we've been given... The power for change is in the word that God has given us. And we must keep that as the priority in our witness. Uh, That's what God sent us into the world to do. And so if we minimize the word, or if we sideline the word in in effort to be relevant, we're going to preach about work schedules or how to get your kids to be compliant, because that'll get people in the door, uh, rather than preaching Christ from all of the scriptures. If, if we forfeit the word, even in exchange for good things, we fail our commission as a church. We fail our commission as a church. As pastor and author Kevin DeYoung said this past week at a conference marking the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, listen to this. He says, if you strive for relevance at all costs in your own day, you may make a difference for a few years. If, however, you anchor yourself in what is eternal, you may just have an impact for 500 years because the word of God outlasts us all. Think about that. Sometimes we feel like we need to move away from the word or add to the word in order to be creative and winsome and really meet people. But guess what? The word of God outlasts us all. And that's what God has given us for change. And so we must proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone in Christ. We have a word-based witness that God has called us to. But what does that look like when we actually put it into practice? Uh, Especially when so many of the people we rub shoulders with day in and day out aren't interested in hearing this word. Now, if you go back to the, the ocean illustration of you know falling overboard in the middle of the ocean and being told to swim to shore, they don't even know they're drowning. They, don't, they, they see the life preserver of the gospel we throw, and, we, and, and that's an offense to their dignity and morality. So, so how do we communicate the gospel uh, today? What does that look like to preach the word, not just from the pulpit, but in telling people about Jesus? That brings us to chapter 4, where Paul not only invites the Colossians to join him in his ministry by praying for him, 
but then encourages them to follow his example by speaking the word of the gospel. And notice that he calls them to two things, and and this is now chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. He calls them to do two things. First is to pray for both the opportunity and the ability to communicate the gospel. And then the second is to walk wisely toward those who don't know Christ, which means speaking the word with grace. Speaking the word with grace. But it starts with prayer. And so verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul asks the Colossian church to pray for his gospel witness, his ministry, his work, for both the opportunity to to proclaim Christ, a door open for the word, and for the ability to make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And you're thinking, okay, this is Paul here. The opportunity and ability, didn't he like, you know, Wasn't he used by God to do so much? Paul prays and asks for prayer, for opportunity and ability. If Paul is asking for that kind of prayer, we need to be praying for those kinds of things in our lives as well. And so he asked them to pray for his gospel witness uh, and and his opportunity, his, his ability. So we, too, need to be praying, God, would you open a door for the gospel? Would you give me the opportunity to share Christ with someone. Uh, Gospel witness necessarily starts with prayer. Necessarily. Because God is the one who does the work. If we're not praying for our witness, guess who we're really depending on for, for for the power to change things? If we're not praying for our witness, we're depending on ourselves. But God is the one who does the work. So we start with prayer. Uh, but... When you begin praying for doors for the gospel, be careful. Because God loves to answer those prayers. You imagine what it would be like if everyone here prayed every day for the opportunity to point someone else for Christ. If that's just part of what we do. God, give me the opportunity today to share you with one person. Imagine if we all started praying that and then spent the day watching for that opportunity, expecting him to answer it. Do you think God would open doors? Yes. Yes, he would. More than that, he'll start laying specific people on your heart. You'll find yourselves praying for the same people over and over. Imagine if everyone here had five people that you were praying for, that didn't know Jesus, that you want to see come to know Jesus, and that you every day prayed for those five people. Some of you do that already. But if you don't, who would that be? Who are the five people in your world, in your life, whom you love, that don't yet know Christ? And what, it, what would God do if we committed every one of us to praying for those five people every day? I believe we would see God work. I believe we would see God work. So we need to pray for open doors, uh, for people, for, for God to prepare people's hearts. We also need to pray for the courage to walk through them. 
and for the confidence and ability to communicate Christ to that person, to make it clear wherever they're at. And, and that means that, that witness doesn't just begin with prayer, it continues with prayer from beginning to end. Because God is the one who does the work, and we never stop relying on Him, or never should. And so we pray, we must pray for our gospel witness. We shouldn't expect anything to change if we're not seeking God to change it. So we pray. That's the first thing Paul tells us to do in terms of our own witness. The second is that he calls the church to be involved in gospel ministry right where they are. Look at verse 5. Conduct yourself wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The priority that Paul gave to his own ministry, of the priority of the word, he now extends to the ministry he calls us to as well, to speak the word. And, and when he's talking about, you know, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, he's not just talking about etiquette in conversation. He's talking about specifically speaking the word. That's the subject. We know that from the context. He just got done asking for them to pray for him to be able to speak the word clearly. Now he tells them to speak with grace. He's talking about speaking the word of God here as we interact with others. And he says to proceed with both wisdom and grace in our gospel witness. So conduct yourselves wisely, making the best use of your time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. We need both wisdom and grace in our witness. Uh, Wisdom helps us know what to say and when to say it. Grace helps us know how to say it. And you need both of those things. So if you think of a doctor uh, giving a medical diagnosis and treatment to a patient, you have to know what you're talking about. Uh, you need the wisdom to be able to see through the symptoms to the, to the root problem and therefore know what the right treatment is. You need wisdom, but you also need grace to communicate that information in a loving way. The doctor who brashly confronts his patient for their sloppy lifestyle, shaming them in the room or something like that, or who coldly informs them of their cancer diagnosis and then proceeds to talk about options like he's listing the specials on a lunch menu. I mean, you don't want that. They, they may well speak the truth, but they're not doing so in a loving and compassionate way. At the same time, nobody wants a doctor who's so afraid of offending you that they're not going to tell you what's going on or they're going to give you misinformation because you'll feel better when you leave the room today. You know, we don't want that either. So grace, you you have to have wisdom and grace in the way that you talk to your patients. In the same way, as witnesses to Christ, we need both wisdom and grace. The wisdom to see through the symptoms of unhappiness, or conflict, or self-indulgence, or brokenness. To see through the symptoms to the deeper sin problem underneath. The sin that separates us from God and that corrupts all of life. 
as well as then being able to offer the proper treatment, the gospel of God's grace. And we need wisdom to see that. We also need grace to communicate that in a loving way that treats someone like a person with a story and not just a project. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, what I want to do is return to Saturday morning's Life on Mission conference from a few weeks ago to something that that our speaker, Trevin Wax, had talked about that morning. He gave us a helpful tool for communicating the gospel. Now, many of you were here for that, but a lot of you weren't, so I only half apologize for the repetition. Um, But it's helpful, and I think it's helpful to look at again. And one of the tools that that Trevin gave us that morning was to learn to look for three things in the stories that we encounter in the world, the stories that our friends and our family believe and embody. What he summarized as the longing, the lie, and the light. So Trevin said, first we need to see that there is usually something good and right in the stories our society tells. The stories our friends believe and embody. When someone believes a myth about the world, it's usually because deep down they want something in that story to be true. The question we must ask is why? Why do people want this story to be true? It may be that they are longing for God and they are looking in the wrong place for that longing to be fulfilled. They believe a myth because they're trying to satisfy something in their soul The myth they believe may be bad, but the longing is good. And we find common ground when we see past the myths into the longings behind them. So, for instance, think about the achievement culture that saturates our world in the Metro West. This drive to accomplish and succeed and to achieve. One of the reasons that so many people don't go to church on Sunday mornings is because they're too busy hauling their kids to sports events from one place to another. Which they have to do on Sunday, because Tuesday and Thursday they're at piano practice, or dance class, and Monday night is, is karate, and Wednesday and Friday are soccer practice, and then there's homework on top of all of that. And whatever family time we might try and, and, and accomplish... Because if we don't involve our kids in all of these things, then they're not going to be well-adjusted and be able to be successful in life. They won't be ready for the college I want them to be able to get into or have the friends I want them to have. And so we have this achievement culture that consumes our world, making us ridiculously busy. And it's the same reason that mom and dad work 70 hours a week. You know, we, we have this drive to achieve. Now, we can look at that. First, we'll realize many of us are are guilty of the same thing. We just add church into the list of things we've got to be able to balance and achieve. But it's easy with all of this, especially the Sunday morning thing, to look on that and, and, and to look at it with judgment. Like, to condemn this whole drive for achievement. And just to tell people coldly, really, you just need to care more about Jesus and less about stuff and success. All those plastic trophies are going to burn anyway. So you just need to, you know, change the way you think about this. And 
That might be true, but is that a loving way to communicate the problem? You know, you just don't go to Sunday because you're too busy with all this other stuff you're trying to achieve. Is that seasoned with salt? Does that taste good going down such that I want to hear more of what you have to say? And so another way to engage someone who's chasing after this performance and achievement dream is instead of just kind of condemning the symptoms, ask, what's the longing underneath that? What is it that's driving them, this ambition? And how does that longing actually reflect God's design and character? You know, what are they really chasing? Is it significance? Is that what they're, they're after? We want to feel like we've made a difference in this world, and we believe the way to do that is this. But they're after significance. Or, or uh, is it, are they after security? You know, we want to know. We want to be able to provide a secure life for our child, because we love them, and so we do this. Or is it acceptance and approval? What is the longing? We're afraid of being rejected or called a failure if we don't do all of these things and jump into the rat race, and so we want to be accepted, and that's the longing that drives it. There is nothing abnormal or wrong about any of those longings. The, want, the desire for acceptance, for significance, for security, approval. Those are all hardwired into our DNA as creatures made in the image of God. Recognizing that longing underneath the story, underneath the behavior, that cultivates a compassion in our hearts. That gives us a common ground. Guess what? I want the same things too. I want the same things for my kids, too. And moreover, if you're going to do the hard work of understanding the longing, that requires a lot of listening. And and that actually then creates relationship with someone. It's a lot harder to treat someone as a project once they've become a friend. And so looking for the longing underneath all of this, whatever the story is, builds compassion in our lives. It helps us season our conversation with grace. But we can't stop there. Trevin continues, It's not enough to look for the deeper longing behind the myth. We must also challenge what is bad about the myth. The gospel doesn't simply affirm our deepest longings of humanity. It also challenges and reshapes those longings. And in doing so, it exposes a lie. If we do not expose the lies at the heart of the stories in our society, we imply that the Christian view of the world is just one option among many, just one way of finding fulfillment. No, Christianity must offer truth, a message that exposes false beliefs and practices. And so back to the achievement example. What's the lie embedded in the myth that says, if I'm the best soccer player or or the best saxophone player, or if I get the lead in the play, or if I become partner in my company by age 35, or if I could chair the PTO, or or become president of the corporation. What's the lie that says, if I can do all of these things, then I'll have the security and satisfaction that I want? What's the lie in that story? The lie is that it's simply not true. 
it's not going to fulfill. And it won't last, even if it does for a minute. There's always someone better who comes along. There's always someone more qualified. There's always the insecurity of losing what makes your life secure. And then there's the cold, harsh reality that not even your great-grandchildren, not only will they, your great-grandchildren, not remember your greatest accomplishment in life, they probably won't know your name. Think about that. How many here can name all eight of your great-grandparents? Raise your hand. You are four generations from oblivion right now. All of this rat race, all of this drive for significance and success, it will not satisfy and it will not last. And so you must expose the lie. So much of what we look for in life to fulfill our longings will not do it. And so surely there's a better way, right? If that's not going to do it, surely there's a better way. And that's the third thing that Trevin pointed out. We have to shine the light of the gospel into the story. We speak of the gospel as light because the biblical writers refer to Jesus Christ and God's word that way. We need light. We want light. But light also exposes and sometimes it blinds our eyes. Christians who shine the light of the gospel on the myths of the world do not simply say, this is right and this is wrong, but this is better. The gospel tells a better story. Yes, the gospel exposes the lies, the lies that we believe and promote in society, but once our eyes adjust to its brightness, we discover that how the gospel also answers our deeper longings in a way that surprises us. Evangelism is not just convincing people that the gospel is true, but also that the gospel is better. It's better. And so again, with achievement, all of these longings for acceptance, significance, security, they all find their eternal and lasting yes in Jesus Christ. Not because we achieve great things for God and he's so proud of us, but because we have a great Savior who has achieved all that is necessary on our behalf and who has taken upon himself all of the failures when we have fallen short. When we are united with him through faith, his acceptance, his significance, his security become our acceptance, our significance, our security. When the Father looks at us, He sees us through His Son and accepts us as His children, not because we followed good advice, but because of what Christ accomplished for us. And so we share in His significance, His victory, His glory, His security, If we are in Christ, the only way that God could love us less is if he loved his son less. Think about that. That is the security you have being united with Christ by faith, becoming God's child. The only way for God to love you less is if he were to somehow love his son less. 
love Jesus less. Because your identity is in him. The only way God could reject us once we're in Christ is if all of a sudden Jesus' blood was no longer enough. That's never going to happen. There is an eternal security that comes from being united with Christ. That is the light of the gospel that shines into the story of achievement and accomplishment in our culture. And we can take that truth of the gospel and we can speak it into any story with wisdom and grace. Everyone has a story. Every single person on earth. You know, Take the story of... of Social justice and activism today. People long to see a better world. They long for a, for a more fair and more just world. Those are good and godly longings. The problem, the lie, is that that can be achieved apart from the reconciling work of Christ on the cross and the new creation that he will ultimately bring someday. So you need the gospel and we can, we can apply that to the story of politics, the story of parenting, career success, personal fulfillment. All of those reflect longings that are good and true. All of them are corrupted by lies here and there. And so we shine the light of the gospel. We announce the news that Jesus Christ is Savior. We don't just offer advice. We don't just offer advice. You know, tell people to swim to shore. We point them to the Savior. We point them to the Savior. And so if we're going to be faithful to bear witness as a gospel-driven church here in the Metro West, our message cannot be how to have better-behaved children in 14 days or less. Though the gospel will change the way you interact with your children. And if they believe it, the gospel will change their hearts as well. Our message cannot be how to make your work schedule work for you. Though the gospel will reshape your priorities in life. Our message is not follow God and, and he'll make all of your dreams come true. Though in Christ you will find something better than you ever imagined. Our message is not about how to change your circumstances and improve your life. Though it touches every part of life. Our message, the news God has given us to proclaim, is that Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is Savior. And Jesus is enough. That is the good news we have to offer to a hurting world. So that when your work schedule doesn't work for you, when you fail and you feel stuck with no progress on your list of all the things you were going to accomplish in your life and no apparent change in circumstances around the corner, you still have everything you need for a life and rest in Jesus. So that when your children fall short of your expectations or break, their, break your heart with their life decisions and you're longing for acceptance by having that model family everyone else wants their kids to marry your kids, doesn't come true. You have lasting acceptance in Christ. A hope that frees you to love your kids regardless of what you get from them in return. A hope that even now, as hard as it is, 
Your children are never beyond the reach of God's grace. When life disappoints, when circumstances stink, when things don't go the way that I planned, when my longings in this life go unfulfilled, it hurts. It really does hurt. But the answer is not figuring out how to swim to shore. It's holding on to the Savior. It's letting the light of the gospel expose the lies and fulfill the longings because there's nothing better than him. That is a message that changes lives. That is the message that gives us hope and that is able to carry us through the darkest night. And that's the message God has sent us into the world to proclaim. Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is Savior. Jesus Christ is enough. Let's pray. Lord, would we believe this message? Would we believe, truly believe in our hearts that you are King, that you are Savior, and that you are sufficient? Lord, we recognize our need for that message. We praise you that it's true. We want to to live in light of that truth in every part of our lives. And God, we want to be faithful to share that truth with others. Lord, we recognize it's scary. We recognize that it's awkward. We recognize that sometimes people don't want to hear it. But Lord, this is life and death. And we recognize that that you are king and you are savior. And so ultimately, it's you who do all of the work. So may we be faithful to pray for the lost. And may we be faithful to open our mouths and point them to Jesus to resonate with the longings we find in our friends and family, to gently expose the lies, and to flood their story with the light of the gospel, that Jesus is not only true, he's better. Give us the wisdom and grace we need to speak your word into the lives of others. And Lord, we pray that that would be true of all of our ministries here as a church. God, we pray uh, as we turn our attention after the service to our, our refocusing process that you would give us unity and clarity and anticipation and faith and joy that we are children of you and servants of your kingdom. And show us what that looks like here. We pray for our upcoming Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Easter services that you would be pleased to shine the light of your gospel into many hearts and bring many who might not otherwise attend church to see you. Give us the courage to invite them, not just to church, but into our homes to share our stories, to listen to their stories, to bring the light of the gospel. And we pray, God, for those who on our behalf are serving you to that end around the globe. Think of Amy and Adam this morning serving in East Asia for their language learning and translation work, for the relationships you've given them. 
We pray also for health and healing for their colleagues, Steph. We pray, Lord, for Ashley Mitchell, who has been asked to share her testimony in a conversation of Muslims and Christians on why she believes the Bible is true this week. God, would you bear much fruit from that conversation? And Lord, we pray for those among us who are, who are in need, for those grieving loss, especially during this holiday season, for John Quazo and his family, for Patty Gear and their family, Terry Mitchell, Barb and Jennifer Emmer and Damien, for Julie Van Wagenen. Would you remind them of the hope of the gospel and fill them with your presence? For those in need of healing, for Stan Rideout and Rick Thompson, for Walter and Tim Maurer, and for those struggling financially, Lord, with job loss or with relational difficulties, emotional difficulties, Lord, we pray for your grace to meet those needs. May we all find our satisfaction and security in you. You are King. You are Savior. You are enough. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.